0: Life in Scents. This episode of Life in Scents is all about coffee. I'm Joe Barrett and Odette Toilette and I have gone to visit barista Ben Townsend at his shop, the Espresso Room, in London's Bloomsbury district. After greeting us to the sound of grinding beans, Ben quickly leads us out of his tiny shop front and round the back for a tasting or smelling, or cupping, and to tell us about some of his significant smell memories.
1: i so just pull that one, too. I'm going to get you to smell the dry coffee, which is really aromatic. There's a way I just learned, actually, which is quite good. You give it a little shake, just to kind of get some air flying in, put your hand over as well, smell the gap. This is a, a quite standardised format for testing and tasting coffee, which we would call cupping. Do it, you do it in actually in a kind of bowl. It's a cup without a handle. But we would get a lot of information from smelling the dry ground coffee, and that's why I didn't grind it till exactly when you got here, because I didn't want it to lose any aroma. It will, it's quite volatile, the aroma, in the ground coffee, so you lose that, and I wanted it to be fresh for you.
0: What was it that made you decide that coffee was for you?
1: Well, funny enough, the first experience of coffee that I can remember, and this is a really classic life intent kind of answer, which I hadn't thought of, Funny enough, was when I was a kid, longer ago than I'm very happy to say, but it, there was a, a, a roaster right behind our house, a, a micro-roaster, I guess you call it now. And I think in the 70s there was a trend for these little local roasteries to pop up and then they all disappeared and I went past the shop and it's a betting shop now surprisingly enough but I used to get sent out to buy the Sunday paper for my dad the Beano for myself and some coffee for Sunday morning. The smell of it used to come over the house and I could smell the coffee roasting.
2: When I first smelt that I thought it was quite the classic caramel word. And then it went a bit um, tart.
1: There's loads of fruit, but it's... I'm, I'm a bit biased by the fact that I already tasted it today and I know what it is. But like, Cherry or... Yeah, it's, it's dark, bluey red fruits, isn't it? Blueberry, Blueberries. Cherry, pulpy, fleshy, plum, blueberry, blackberry. Yeah. But for me, there's a definite kind of slightly fermenty thing in there. It's a yoga Chef, which is a classic Ethiopian flavour profile, but it's a naturally processed, so it's been dried in the sun, which is unusual. And natural processed coffees typically don't cup as clean as washed or pulp natural coffees, but they do tend to be sweeter. Um, and they also, because they're dried in the sun, they often ferments slightly because the fruit is in contact with the seed i.e. the coffee bean and that's where this ferment thing is coming from it's actually physically coming from or chemically coming from ripe fruit in contact with the seeds. How much of the the
0: difference between the taste is the environment and the place where it's grown and how much of it is the processing of the bean afterwards?
1: That's a really interesting question there's a lot of um, waffle that's a horrible thing to say there's a lot of kind of chat around the idea of terroir with coffee and there's definitely an effect from where the coffee's grown but from everything I've been thinking about and talking to people the things that occur to the coffee after it's been picked has so much effect so the processing is huge that's a really underrepresented thing roast is really important and freshness is really important so um, I would argue that the, the type of coffee plant grown and the process and the roast and the freshness have as much effect, or, or, or effect that, that I can pick up anyway, as the place it's been grown in. What you more tend to find is that coffees are sold by a style that conforms to an expectation of place. So lots of Ethiopian coffees will be sold as Yirgacheffe because they taste like the classic Yirgacheffe lemon bergamot profile but really are from somewhere else within Ethiopia. They're driven to Yogachev in a truck, then sold there, and then suddenly they are Yogachev. But it represents a flavour profile rather than the true point of origin. I've always liked making things, so I still do make loads of stuff. And I used to love making planes. You can make fully flying planes at the age of you know nine or ten it's pretty amazing you can sit down with some balsa wood and tissue paper and turn out this thing that really flies the smell of the glue and also when you stick the tissue over the balsa wood kind of uh, frame there's a special stuff which is called dope Um, and you know for a 10 year old boy to sit in a room with the door shut doping a plane you were absolutely high and I can still remember the smell now I kind of imagine the smell and the feeling as we speak so Sort of this, this, the seventies and eighties were not a kind of super health and safety time there's lots of solvent things that you're exposed to. Have you gone back and tried to build a plane? see if you could? uh I have not built a plane, but I definitely could um because I still make loads of stuff now and actually originally I wanted to be a furniture maker, so that 's what I originally trained to do, so the furniture making was absolutely. In the same line as making wooden model aeroplanes and i still do lots of woodwork so yes i could make a plane again
0: and i think from planes to planing there must be great smells just sat <laughs> planes to planing very good
1: yeah this yeah I, I, and again i think it's freshness again like freshly planed wood smells completely different to our old planed or cut wood there's this there's, there's this notion of freshness and and, and the change in smells that that I I guess I've always liked. Some woods that smell pooey or or, or off, I do quite like I'm sort of fascinated as a ginkgo tree near me that produces, um, there's a whole series of trees actually and they drop these yellow berries all over the pavement and as you tread on them they pop like a, pretty much like treading on a kind of slightly harder grape and the smell is exactly halfway between sick and poo but it's so perfectly placed and so you know, beautifully complex. That I'm fascinated by it. Even at the same time, I know that I'm sort of smelling sick poo combination smell.
2: So, what are you doing here, Ben?
1: Okay, so I'm. I've measured out previously um, using a sixty gram to one liter ratio. These are two hundred mil cups. I measured out. Um, about 13 grams of quite coarsely ground coffee, so kind of French press style coffee. I've now filled the cups up with not boiling water, so the water would have been about 93, which is about right. And I'm allowing them now to brew, and you can see that the coffee's really fresh. You can see all these bubbles of gas. That gas won't be air. That's carbon dioxide, which is from the roasting. And stale coffee loses that carbon dioxide, um, along with lots of other kind of aromatic components. When you are cupping, you're kind of keeping an eye on whether it does foam up like this because it's a sign of freshness. So, I'm gonna, I'm gonna knock off about 30 seconds for yakking. All this stuff that you've just
0: told us about is this a kind of established scientific fact or is this your personal trial and error, the way you like to do things? What, this,
1: this method of brewing? Yeah. No, it's very standardized. This is the industry standard, so this is, this is cupping protocol. So at the four minute mark, what I'm going to get you to do is to grab a coffee and you're going to break with the spoon the crust, we call it the crust, the kind of floating grounds and water and you're going to break and stir right round. So you're going to go in, which sort of pops the bubble and you should sniff at that point so get your nose right over it and as you pop that crust, there should be a big... Whiff of aromatic gas that will give you lots of information about what the coffee smells and tastes like, and then you're going to stir right round only once. The reason you're stirring is to break the crust, and you'll see that nearly all of it sinks. At which point, we can do a little bit of cleaning and then start to actually physically taste. And in like that, okay. Okay, stir that top layer. Good,
2: okay, good. Whoa, that's really changed, Uh as in. It's not different, the blueberries are there, but they're kind of, this is Violet Beauregard turning into a blueberry after she's chewed the gum. Like that, it's not marshmallowy, but that, they're pulpier and wet. It's really wet fruit. Um, Any teenage smells? Am I allowed
1: to say this? How how can we say herbal cigarettes, jazz fags? Very, very, um, uh, uh, you know, something of course I was not, you know, I wasn't kind of into it. Um, so, yeah, I say my teen years pretty much the, the smell was records, vinyl records, which smell lovely. Anyone who's ever bought a brand new vinyl record knows the smell of the, the wrapper. And, and I absolutely remember there's a way you can open a shrink wrap vinyl record by kind of rubbing one edge of it on your jeans. If you rub the, the open side, on your jeans, you so very quickly it snaps the cellophane perfectly along the seam so you can take out the record and the smell of the white wax paper um, sleeve and the actual record itself is really distinctive. So that's a classic teenage smell, something I used to make a point of, buy a record and smell it as I, as I took it out, the, 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 the cellophane, yeah.
0: Can you remember the first record you bought?
1: Yeah, first record I bought actually is... um. I'm quite glad about this, because lots of people's first record is like the Birdie song or something like that. My first record was the 12-inch from Richmond R. Price of "Past the Duchy by Musical Youth. Um, It's still a great record, actually, Uh, and somewhere I have it. it. I'm cleaning these glasses, cups, um, so that we can start to taste them with the spoon. So as you're going to start to drink the coffee out of a... It's a special spoon, but you can use any soup spoon. It's basically just a spoon that's round with a bowl, so not a teaspoon, not um, a tablespoon. So what you're trying to do with cupping is really standardise what you do, and that means that someone in America could be doing the same thing with the same coffee or someone in Ethiopia or somewhere, anywhere you like, and essentially bar a little bit of difference between water quality and maybe your grind, we can be fairly sure that we're all doing the same thing. We're going to take um, maybe a teaspoon's worth in the spoon, and we are going to either sip it, or if you can, sort of slurp it in with some air, and that should give you your retro nasal, also on your tongue, so tongue and nose, basically. We're trying to kind of do the whole thing in one go. Yeah, I can smell it and taste it, and that's what I was trying to do.
2: The thing about this coffee and having tried a few different (coughs) coffees recently, I usually have them with milk. Yeah. And, but I can really see the argument for not with this one. It's definitely not down the kind of the malty end of the spectrum, is it? I suppose that's the fruitiness. That's why I can't, because yeah, right. that tart fruit, I just can't yeah. imagine that with yeah. milk.
1: So when I do more cups on the table, I often put milk in one of them, so you can see how it will taste with milk. And if you run a coffee business, it's actually pretty important that you have a coffee that tastes good with milk, because most people are drinking lattes and flat whites. The coffees that taste the fruitiest and most beautiful without milk actually become pretty sickly with milk. And its I don't know if anyone as a kid experimented with um, Ribena and milk, with milk, even for a... <laughs> sort of seven-year-old, it's disgusting.
0: So coffee is very big in, say, Melbourne, mm-hmm. and Melbourne's a very hot climate, yeah. and England, particularly today, is a sleety, <laughs> yeah. wet, grey, miserable yeah. place. And yeah. but when I think of coffee, I clutch the coffee to me and smell yeah. the, yeah. the, the yeah. heat, and that's yeah. part of the experience.
1: Yeah.
0: Do you think it's a different experience in different uh, environments?
1: Well, I used to live in Melbourne, and that is where I got into coffee. The things to do with temperature is one of the big problems in our industry. So one of the things that I've made a point of tonight is that we've tasted the coffee not even hot when we first started and basically room temperature at the end. Um, so the temperature thing, I think it's because, yeah, as you say, the climate here is not very warm generally, and today especially not. Um, but also we're a tea-drinking culture, and we've learned to expect, A, that we can sit around the drink for a long time. So you might have a pot of tea and kind of drink it over 20 minutes, half an hour. And also it's very, very hot. And I think that the pleasures of tea relate to flavour, but also massively to temperature and texture. And I think we add the milk a lot to do with mouthfeel. It's thick. Um, virtually no other tea-drinking cultures in the world put milk in their tea for that reason, because it actually inhibits the flavour, not adds to it. So with coffee, honestly, I wish people wouldn't treat it like tea. It's not supposed to last you for half an hour and stay hot indefinitely. And it just doesn't taste or smells as good hot as cooling. It's just, it's a different drink. And I don't think external temperature has a huge amount to do with that. I mean, you know, on a hot day, honestly, I don't want coffee or tea. I want a cold beer. But um, I had no interest in coffee or knowledge of it when I went there. And I got into it there. Um, and it was a really exciting time. It was pretty much like London now. Just cafes opening like crazy and everyone's really excited by it and there's constant technological innovations and cultural innovations. You know, the flat white is a Australian, New Zealand thing and it's actually just another milk and espresso drink. There's nothing very radical about it. But And I got into food really fully there. It's just, you know, Australia's incredible for freshness. It's, it's a producer country, so you can get all of the fruit and veg that you want, really fresh, really tasting amazing. Tomatoes taste amazing. Mangoes taste amazing. Whereas, you know, over here, you can buy tomatoes all year round, but the number of times I eat a tomato and think, you know, that was like, kind of watery, hard thing. is, is you know, a bit disappointing over here sometimes. Just out of that's the fruit of the ah. seed. So, That's a green coffee bean, right? before roasting. They've bleached a bit, because they're really old. But they're green before they're roasted, and they get brown. That's the cherry, whilst it's a fruit, but dried, so it would have been red. But that's the flesh of the same thing. Can you see? And that was the original drink, not the roasted seeds. So perhaps I'll make a little bit of this up and have it. It's, it's, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what you make of it. There's not very much flesh, so you can't really eat anything, but you tend to sort of suck it, and it's um, very sweet, almost like a honey. Like a um, next, I guess. I mean, it's still drunk. I mean, the 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 Spanish word for it is cascara, which I think just means sort of um, shell or casing. But the Arabic word, I think, is kisha, and that's still drunk quite widely. So it hasn't stopped. Um.
0: It's incredibly fruity. Mm. And fresh. I like potpourri.
2: What is that? It's really comforting. It's yeah. almost like a raisin.
1: Is, is it, I was going oh. to say raisin and rose here.
2: But what I really get is, is the raisiny, yeah. like sort of raisins that are a bit weak.
1: So it's exactly what you're describing. It's, you're describing a raisin, which is a dried fruit... And this is exactly that, it's a dried fruit. So that's it's 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 a really interesting drink. Um I think caffeine with a K, the cafe, that very excellent cafe in Fitzrovia, will serve you a cascara. So if anyone wants to try it or smell it, you can go to caffeine and have it there.
2: Is this drinkable? Yeah. Yeah. Can I have a sip? Yeah. It's really, um, this would be a nice drink in the summer.
1: Mm. It chills really well as well.
2: Instead of iced tea.
1: It's very caffeine-y, I have to say. So if you drank a whole glass like that, it would be easily like drinking a glass of, of, of normal filter coffee. So the caffeine is in the coffee plant as a, um, an insecticide, as, a, as an insect deterrent. It's very toxic to insects. So it makes sense that the most caffeine is in the skin and the flesh because that's the f- line of defence of the seed, which is the next generation of plants. So there's loads of caffeine in that bit of the fruit. I was reading
0: about how coffee has maybe 600 different yeah. chemicals in it that contribute to yeah. the smell of it. yeah. Um, and I read somewhere that that's
1: increasing all the time. Is that because people are just discovering more things? Apparently, for you, for you to accurately identify it as coffee, you only need about 30. So whether you can even pick up all of the 800 is 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 open to debate. They're using um, chromatography, gas chromatography on coffee, just the same way they are with perfumes, and you can you know figure out your peaks and basically work out what's going on with it. The difference between perfume and coffee, I guess, is that one is, and the reason I like perfume and the reason I like coffee is that one is very transient. It's this year's crop. It won't taste the same from next year's crop. It's roasted and fresh now. So the green coffee needs to be fresh and the roasted coffee needs to be fresh. So these flavours are kind of here and then they're gone and these smells. Um, whereas with perfume, you've got much more stability. You can come back to a bottle of perfume after years of owning it if you've kept it properly and it will smell the same I I should think they're pretty stable so I like the fact that one you you can't have forever I like the fact that it goes that that I I find
0: that enjoyable I imagine it's not possible because you need to roast it and then you need to make the coffee very quickly but as a concept almost Mm. adding things to the coffee to bring out Mm. a peach or a blueberry or a wood how do you feel about that?
1: Um, as a concept, it's fine. One of the things I would say is that we've, we're we only at the real early days of th- this so-called kind of revival in speciality coffee, and really we're still just figuring out how to get the best from the coffee from the field. So you can make a really good argument that our job is only to release the flavours that were already in there to kind of present the least amount of interference. So if I have in some way affected the flavour by what I've done, I feel like I've kind of failed, really. My job is to kind of give you what was already in the coffee that the plant put in there. Um, so adding flavours is, is not something I'm interested in right now.
2: Um, how many perfumes do you have, Ben?
1: I've actually made perfumes in branded bottles. I guess I probably have about 50. Then I have loads of little decants and things that people have given me that I don't know what all of them are. And then I have the Perfumer's Apprentice ingredients box, which has maybe 25 components in it. But I actually enjoy them as much as smelling perfume. What I like is smell. So, you know, I really enjoy smelling one of the aldehydes or smelling. What's the kind of one that smells? What's the. Leukoturin described as a, a freshly sucked silver spoon? Is it, is it Hedione or something? Yes. Yeah. If they count as perfumes as well, I guess there must be over over 100. So pushing 120? Do you experiment yourself with
0: smell and mix things together and make things?
1: No, I haven't actually at all. Um, I Perfume, for me, there's a component that what I like is the fact that it's composed by people. So the opposite with coffee. With coffee, like I said, all I'm trying to do is get the flavour that was in there already out. There's i try to intervene minimally whereas with perfume it's like the ultimate form of intervention that you capture these smells from nature or you just completely synthesize them in a laboratory and then you mix them and then you put them in a, a carrier and then you package them up in a bottle and i find that kind of level of skilled intervention really fascinating but it's a bit like and there's a famous quote about um it's about ballet but um, they say um, amateur ballet is like amateur brain surgery. You, you don't really want it. I do so much tasting and smelling that I can't wear anything. They are much more for kind of intellectual pleasure. But I did once ask uh, a, a then girlfriend. It was a choice between. I think I offered her three choices of something I was going to wear. And I think it was light and bright, um, which was I think probably the Farina cologne. Um, classic and tasteful, which was the Azaro Puran, or sweaty and purvy, which was Kuros. And her reply was that boat has already sailed. Yes. <laughs> oh. So uh, <laughs> it, it, it certainly doesn't add to my uh, appeal. It's more of an intellectual thing.
2: Kuros, I think you could pull off Kuros, Ben. Yeah, Kuros is the loudest perfume, especially for men, that I've ever come across. I think it works best if it's with someone who's quite discreet and low-key, and then you're not expecting it, and then it's a da-da!
1: Yeah, I I like it because it's so... I like extremes. And and I I do find it amazing that such an extreme perfume was able to find mass-market appeal. And actually, that's what's really interesting about what perfume and coffee and everything else... In, it has in common that, that is presenting to people choices and there's always this constant constant deviation to the mainstream and the easy because that's what people think they like and focus groups and corporate people think people like but actually when I do put weird coffees in front of people people are really interested in them and I think that perfumes like Kuros I'm, I'm, I'm not massively confident in wearing it unless it's kind of in an ironic way which I don't think you should wear perfume ironically you should wear it because you really believe in it. I think actually the fact that people do really like perfumes like that says that you can push people more than 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 say big corporate companies think I think there are some there are some smells that are inherently likable there are few universal flavors aren 't there so basically everyone, no matter what their food culture likes chocolate, likes vanilla. I think most people like caramel, but you know not everyone likes lime or lemon, it's, it's not a universal flavour preference, but I think roasting coffee is a near, and, and, and baking bread are nearly universal smell preferences.
0: Do you think people enjoy it because it's, it just naturally works with our the way our bodies are built or do you think it works because kind of culturally because of the way we experience coffee and the that smell of coffee?
1: It's really hard to say because you, if you look at Taking the seed of a fruit, drying it, then roasting it, then grinding it, then pouring hot water on it, and then drinking it or smelling it. It's its not exactly, you, there's no way we've evolved for that. Um, you know, we could easily have evolved to like the taste of fresh fruit, because it's full of energy and it's, it's you know, there's it's a good reason that fruit is attractive to animals to eat. So... I, don't know, I honestly don't know why it's so universally liked. I mean, there's, there's this idea of Maillard reactions, um, which were universally like and that would be most of your baking and roasting. For people who are, who are familiar with their kind of basic food chemistry, your, your Maillard or Maillard reactions are your classic browning reactions that you see all over the place, so toasted nuts... Um, roasted coffee obviously cut chocolate very obviously not many people think that chocolate's been roasted but that's the key part of making it taste like chocolate
2: the interesting thing about the maillard reaction is that you can't fake it as in you it's a chemical process so you have to actually have the reaction happening to be able to smell it because some of the work that I've been doing with care homes and dementia and we were looking at food fragrances to get people's appetites going again and the one that people kept saying was this baked bread one mm-hmm. and uh, everyone thinks supermarkets pump fake bread smell around but actually I think what they must be doing is um, just redirecting the bread as it bakes because we worked with perfumers and tried so many breads and none of them worked at all, you just couldn't do it.
1: I've never, ever smelled a good coffee smell, synthetic or captured. It seems to only exist in the moment. I don't think people are so gullible. I think, I think you know, you learn to like nice things, but so much of it is, is, is the context that you have it in. So if you buy, you know, an, a nice coffee in a place that you absolutely love, I'll take that any day over an amazingly delicious coffee in a place that I hate. So context is really important.
0: This has been Ben Townsend's Life in Scents. If you want to experience Ben's perfect coffee and cafe for yourself, it's on Great Ormond Street opposite the hospital, and it is widely agreed that it delivers one of the best cups of coffee available in the city. And for people who are really hooked, he also runs courses at the London School of Coffee. Original music is from Skywide Sea.
2: Life in Sense with Joe Barrett and Odette Toilette.